seated. What a sweet time of worship. Thank you, Ryan. One of my favorite hymns, if not my favorite hymn, it is well with my soul. That's something that we can all celebrate this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you will turn to Ephesians, the second chapter, we're continuing in our study this morning of the series, But God. Last week, we looked at kind of an introduction, the shocking news of what God does for us, how he puts that but God into the sentence that makes it so wonderful for us. This morning, we're going to look at how God is rich in his mercy, how God is rich in his mercy. Next week, I hope you'll be here. In fact, for the next two weeks, I think, we'll be looking at how God can turn evil into good. Uh, something very fascinating. In fact, I'll read with you as we close out this morning uh, a place where uh, uh, God took some evil and turned it into good, kind of a preview of where we'll be going next week. Let me recap a little bit of last week as we begin this week as we talk about uh, how God uh, loves us so much and how he is rich in his mercy. Remember, we talked about in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, how we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Remember, I shared with you at the very beginning last week that you kind of had to swallow the bad news that Paul is sharing with the church at Ephesus here. He says in verse 1, as for you, and we pointed out that that you means literally you. It's not the church. It's not... Uh, people, although we are all sinful, but he was directing the you to you and to me. And he was letting us know that we were dead in our sins, uh, that we can't ever be good enough. You can't ever do anything that would make you good enough uh, to qualify uh, for God's salvation. There, there is just nothing you can do. You can be the greatest human, you know, we, uh, a lot of times, especially for reference for us, we would refer to somebody like a Billy Graham who's in his 90s and seems like almost the perfect kind of a person, lived a life completely dedicated toward God. Some of you uh, maybe saw my Facebook post this past week about Louis Palau. Uh, Louis Palau is uh, probably the best-known evangelist outside of the United States. He is a, a, a Billy Graham protege. He's in his uh, late 60s. Uh, he has spoken to literally millions of people all over the world. Uh, you can probably tell by his name, Luis Palau, that he uh, is Spanish-speaking, although he speaks English very well, and his headquarters are here in America. But he travels literally all over the world, just came back from uh, over Christmas holidays, a revival in England where thousands of people came to know the Lord and how he has just discovered over the Christmas holidays that he has stage four lung cancer. And um, the, the prognosis is not uh, very good at all. And yet at the same time, when you look at somebody like a Billy Graham or, or, or Luis Palau, they would be the first ones that they were standing in front of you today to tell you that they are not good enough to have earned uh, the mercy and the salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ. It's only because of what Jesus did on the cross for them. I, I, I love this scripture right here where it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgression. You know, we, tr we try to sugarcoat that understanding of us being dead. You know, it's kind of we almost kind of want to make it where well, we're bad or we, we're kind of wounded or we're kind of struggling 
as people, but the scripture is very clear that you are dead. Uh, you know, you can't be any more dead than you are dead in the fact that uh, your sins have made you dead. And there is no recovery. There is no CPR. There is no special surgery that can make you better. Um, I started thinking of, about this a little bit when uh, the other day. We, we have a refrigerator out in our garage uh, because uh, Laura and I love to entertain. We love to have people over, and so it, sometimes it requires a second refrigerator. Some of you have that too. We happen to have a place in our garage that we had built uh, specifically for a second refrigerator so that when people came over, we would have the ability to get things. My initial purpose with that refrigerator was it was a great place to store hundreds of Mountain Dews. And so that's what I use it for. It's, it's a great thing. But every once in a while, Laura stores things in that refrigerator too, food and extra food and all kinds of stuff. And I, in typical husband fashion, I'd been going out to that refrigerator and I do literally have Mountain Dews in the refrigerator. And I was grabbing a Mountain Dew and I would do that every day or every other day, sometimes two or three times a day, but I was doing that, and every time I would go out there and open the door, it's in a little closet in our, in our garage, I would open the door, and there would be this kind of a stench that would hit me, and in typical husband fashion, I would go, gosh, that really stinks, and then I'd grab my Mountain Dew and go on and drink my Mountain Dew, and in typical fashion, as you can understand, it seemed like every day it was getting a little worse and a little worse. And finally, it got so bad that I said to Laura, something stinks out here in the refrigerator, instead of looking into it myself, uh, because I really didn't want to discover what might be stinking. And so it wasn't just a little while later that Laura came back in and she said, I pulled open one of the drawers and somebody had put in some chickens, had put some chicken in there, and it's been there for weeks, and it really, really stinks. Yeah, shame on me is exactly right. It was really good, though, because Laura dealt with it the whole time, and I didn't ever have to deal with it. But the, the reason I'm telling you that is because I want to drive home this point. That chicken was dead, all right? And we preserved it for a little while in a refrigerator. But even preserving that dead chicken for a little while in the refrigerator didn't help it come back to life. In fact, it just got worse and worse and worse until when Laura finally recovered it, put it into a bag, and we threw it away forever. Because that chicken was no good to us ever again. Nobody ever wanted to eat it, as you can imagine. It wasn't good enough for the dog. It wasn't good enough for anybody. It was dead and gone, and we threw it away. It was worthless. Now, that's a real harsh picture for me to paint about your life and my life. But if I'm going to be honest with the scripture and if I'm going to be honest with what God teaches us, I have to be honest enough to tell you that your life is dead and worthless in the midst of sin without Jesus Christ and without the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope. 
But here, here comes the sweet part. Remember, I, I, I told you this last week. It's like going to the doctor's office, and when you get finished at the doctor's office, you get that sweet candy that makes it so worth it. Well, the sweet part is the two words, the, the conjunction, the interruption of your dead and worthless life comes from the statement, but God. Remember, I, I told you in, in Scripture, uh, and just a, a little more background of this, I, I read out of the NIV. I, I remind you of that every once in a while. This, this Bible is very special to me. It's a 1984 version of the NIV. It was given to me in 2007 by missionaries in Africa. This is actual elephant skinned, and they knew I loved the NIV, and, and so they gave me this Bible, and they actually wrote an inscription on the front of it. Uh, I, I love what it says. It says, Bobby, we know that the Lord has used you as the catalyst to encourage and lead others to take the step of faith and be obedient to go where he leads. Continue to be that catalyst. Continue to go when he, where he calls you to go and when he calls you to go. And then it says, we hope you will enjoy this genuine elephant hide covered Bible. Well, you know, that's kind of been my mission in life is to take people where God leads us, uh, where he wants us to go. I, I told you that the NIV, I don't think, does a very good job of, of rendering this verse in four that I love so much. It, it, it goes on after we talk about, or after Paul talks about being dead in our transgressions and our sins. It, it comes to this place after it's painted this picture that seems like there is no hope to paint this picture where it says, but... And in the NIV that I have, it says, but because of his great love for us. Now, when the scripture was being, uh, was originally written, it was written in several different languages. Most of you that know a little bit about the Bible understand that it was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It depends on what part of the Bible you're looking at and, and some of the, the Bible that you're studying as to what language might have been the original text of what was being used. But kind of what I wanted to give you is just a caveat, kind of a side note as we're looking through and studying the word is this understanding of scripture. When, when it was written in the Greek or the, the Hebrew or the Aramaic, all those languages were not changing languages. In fact, uh, two out of the three were not spoken even really. They were a written language, but not a spoken language. And because of the way that time was back in, in, in the biblical times, uh, language was not changing much. But fast forward to where we are now, and language is changing all the time. New words are being added every year, new understandings and new connotations. Uh, it's a rapid pace understanding. And so some of you might wonder to yourself, well, why do we have anything else beside the King James Version? If it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for anybody else. But the King James Version wasn't written when Jesus was alive. You understand that. It, the, the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic were the words uh, of Jesus' life. And that's the words that were in the original text. But as we fast forward to where we are now, you almost have new translations that are, that are coming on the scene every 10 years, every 5 to 10 years. In fact, I, I always find it fascinating. You, uh, I had a lady one time when I was going in to buy a Bible at, at a Lifeway bookstore. 
she, she was asking me what uh, Bible I was looking for, and I, was, I told her I was looking uh, for the Holman translation. It was a, it's kind of a newer translation that I did not have, and I was looking for one. It's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible, HCSB, and I, I wanted that version. And she said, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the hot version right now. She said, that's the version that most of the seminary students are using. And I said, yes. And she said to me, uh, I, I told her I was a pastor, and she said to me, what version do you use of the Bible? What translation do you use? And I said, well, I use the, the NIV. And she said, oh, you graduated from seminary in the 80s. And I went, wow, that's really good. And she said, I can almost pinpoint when you graduated seminary from what translation you use. Now, I, I'm telling you all that because different translations are not bad uh, in and of themselves as long as they follow the textual understanding of the scripture you're not going to find bad translations even paraphrases can be very helpful to you as your pastor I want to recommend that you have multiple translations and multiple paraphrases when when you grab the living Bible and read it if it helps you understand the scripture more power to you for that. If you uh, like a, another paraphrase or another translation, as long as you understand that it follows the, the text of the scripture, I'm okay with that. You can find good understanding. And so as you begin to study the word, you will find a translation or you will find a paraphrase that helps your heart to understand what the word is telling you. That's why I really like the New American Standard here, because the New American Standard doesn't interrupt the words, but God. The NIV, my, my uh, translation says this in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, because, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. Nothing wrong with that. Wonderful understanding. But I love when the words, but God, come together. Because there's so many moments in our lives when we really need to have that but God moment. I wrote down a, several times when, when the word but was very uh, imperative in my life. Um, you know, you've been in these situations too. I mean, the, the phrases that, that I have written down uh, don't only apply to me and to my family and to my circumstances. You would know of hundreds, if not thousands of times, when somebody has used the word but and it totally changed the direction of everything that was going on in your life. You know, I remember one time when I heard uh, them say to a family member that they had discovered cancer. And then the doctor said, but it's early and we can take care of it. I remember one time we were getting on a plane uh, and, and the, the lady working the counter said, this flight is full. But there's a seat in first class that we're going to let you have. Well, I was excited that day. I remember one time Laura and I were together and they said, the hotel is full, but the honeymoon suite's available. That's okay with me. I'll take that. That'd be great. You know, you can all relate to times in your life when that word but totally 
changed everything for you. I wrote down here in my notes that it's the sweetest conjunction that's ever been written. But God. Because when that word is come, when that phrase is uttered, everything changes in your life. Everything changes. Listen, there's two understandings I, I want everybody to walk away with today. Two understandings, and, and then we'll wrap this up, and we'll go to lunch and celebrate a but God moment. Because you do realize, don't you, that Georgiana was close to death, but God intervened in her life. And that's a sweet but God moment that we're going to celebrate today. So here, here's the two understandings that, that I want everyone to walk away with today. The first is this, we all need mercy. Mercy is being wrong, yet not getting the punishment you deserve. Let me say that again. Mercy is being wrong, but you don't get the punishment that you deserve. Listen, when you read this scripture here, when you read verse 4, and it says, but because of his great love for us, or like I like to say, but God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ. You know what the author is saying there? What Paul is saying to you is, this is what you deserve. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. You deserve everything that, that the God that we love could heap upon you. But what he has chosen to heap upon your life is not punishment, but mercy. He has chosen to heap love and mercy upon you. It's not what you deserve, but it's what you get. It's the greatest. Oh, mercy is the most incredible thing. I, I, I wonder if any of you can relate to a time in your life, maybe when you got mercy in your life. And it was because somebody intervened in your life and delivered mercy when you really didn't deserve it. The, the one time that comes really crystal clear to me uh, is, is a time when, when I was in, in seminary. Um, and I, I don't know if I've sh shared the story. If I have, I, I ask for, for your forgiveness. And if I haven't, I'll, I'll try to be brief and just tell you what happened. But my, my last year uh, of seminary, I, I worked a security situation. I worked 11 at night till 7 in the morning. And there was a family that... Uh, in the late, or I should say early 80s, began uh, taking Fort Worth, downtown Fort Worth. Uh, I went to seminary in Fort Worth. But this family called the Bass Brothers, uh, who uh, were very wealthy, uh, had cornered uh, kind of the market in some areas and had earned lots of money. And so they decided to invest their money into to rebuilding downtown Fort Worth. And in the midst of rebuilding downtown Fort Worth, and if you've been there in the last 25 or 30 years, you know that they totally transformed downtown Fort Worth. Downtown Fort Worth has incredible museums and theaters and restaurants, and it was all because in the 80s the, the Bass Brothers went in and took a place that was very scary to go at night and made it a very safe place to go at night. And they did it by investing millions of dollars to change downtown Fort Worth. There were three Bass Brothers 
the, the, the three Bass brothers uh, who invested all this money in downtown Fort Worth lived outside of Fort Worth in a little suburb called Overton Hills. It, it's just a little suburb. You can look it up on the map. It has about 1,000 to 2,000 people that live in it, and they're very wealthy people who carved out their own community within Fort Worth. They have their own police department, the Overton Hills Police Department. They have their own fire department, the Overton Hills Fire Department. And as they were rebuilding, the Bass Brothers were rebuilding downtown Fort Worth, uh, they, they were building two huge towers. And they, one was already constructed when I went to work for them, and the other one was being constructed. And what they did was they hired uh, seminary students to be security during the day and during the night. Like I said, I, I worked the 11 to 7 shift. There was three of us that worked at 11 at night till 7 in the morning. And our job was to kind of protect the work sites, protect downtown. As people were getting off work, they would call us and we would escort them to their cars. We would walk all over the buildings, up and down the floors of the 50-story building and ride the elevators and check all the floors, do all that kind of stuff. I did that for just a little while, and then they transferred me out to the residences. I told you the three brothers lived out in Overton Hills, and they had three mansions out there. And they put a security guard in front of every mansion, and then they had one guy that drove a car around between all three and would relieve the security guards at, at we called it lunch, but it was 3 o'clock in the morning, but it was to give them an hour break so they could go grab something to eat. Okay? Sorry this story is a little long, but there is a point, I promise. Okay? I drove the car around because that was the coolest job ever, and I just got to drive around all the time, all night long from 11 to 7, driving around between the residences looking for bad guys. The Bass Brothers, because of their great wealth, had been threatened over and over again with uh, kidnappings of their children and all kinds of stuff. That's why they employed all these security people. So I, I drove around from place to place. I had to do security, you know, take an hour at each home, to take the place of one of the security guards. So I'm at the, the main brother, the, the wealthiest brother, the one who is the smartest one who's done all the redoing of downtown Fort Worth. And I'm taking the place of that security guard there. And this is like my first week in, the, in this situation where I'm at the residences. And when I walk into the guard place in the front driveway, he says to me, he says, now, there's, there's these two buttons here. He said, one of the buttons is an emergency call to the police department. The other button opens the garage door. He said, I need you to grab that button sometime while I'm at lunch. Open the garage door, walk through the backyard, walk all around the backyard, just check and make sure everything's okay, and then come back out and come back up here. So, okay. So he's gone for about 20 or 25 minutes, and I grab the button out of the guard shack, and I walk to the garage door. And I'm standing at the garage door, and I'm, I know I've got to open this garage door to check. And so I, I push the button, and the garage door doesn't move. So I push it again, and it doesn't move. So now I'm doing what any normal man would do. I just start pushing, 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 because <laughs> that garage door ought to move, and the battery's probably dead. So I'm pushing, 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 pushing. And then I, it just all of a sudden it dawns on me that he said, one button does the police and one button does the garage door. And so I go, oh my gosh, did I pick up the wrong button? And I start running back to the guard area. 
And as I am running back to the guard area, lights are coming on in the house, and I hear sirens coming from the Overton Hills Police Department. And I have walkie-talkie and all kinds of stuff, and so I'm calling, I'm going, no, 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 no. Don't come. Tell people not to come. Tell them it's a false alarm. Tell them I pushed the wrong button. I'm telling everything. But it's too late. They're already coming. They've already called the house. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. They've called the residents. They've woken up Mr. Bass and his whole family. They're actually in a safe, I don't know what you call it, a safe, safe in the house. They have this place where they can go lock themselves in the safe. And the whole family has been picked up and moved into the safe. And I'm a 25-year-old security guard outside going, I'm done. My job is over. My life is over. Um, this is no good. So literally, it, within two minutes, two, two to four minutes of me pushing that button, every Overton Hills policeman is standing in the driveway looking at me. And my boss has driven from downtown. He's looking at me. Everybody's looking at me, and they're all wanting to know what happened. And I go, well, there's two buttons here, and I, <laughs> I pushed the wrong button. It's simple, you know. So I literally did exactly what you can imagine. I, I began to beg. I said, I made a mistake. I made a huge mistake, and I'm begging you to forgive me for that. Well, the, the policemen, they were so-so. They kind of wanted to forgive me, but they were kind of not too happy with me, too. My boss was not happy at all. Mr. Bass said, I can see how you would have made that mistake. It's no big deal. We're all fine. That's all that matters. And he turned around and went back inside his house. And I was given another chance. It really changed the direction partially. I don't know what I would have done. I'm sure I could have gotten another job, but that was a great job for me. It paid really well, and I was saving up all the money I could make so Laura and I could get married and we could finish seminary and start our life together. Listen, when you read verse 4, but God, because of his great love for us, the God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Listen, y'all, that makes what happened to me on that day pale in comparison to what God has done for you and me. He changed everything when that day that you chose to admit that you were a sinner and admit that you needed the forgiveness of God. You see, that day back a few years ago when I was working as a security agent, I was begging Mr. Bass for my job. But the most important begging I've ever done was when I begged Jesus Christ for my life, when I begged him for forgiveness when I begged him for mercy, knowing that I don't deserve it, but knowing that he gave everything so that I could have it. Okay, two things I really want you to understand this morning. Number one is we all need mercy. I hope that story drove that home for you. I hope this scripture 
drives it home for you that we all need mercy. But the second is this. We are poor, poor people, but God is rich. It says so in the scripture. Look at it. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Now, I would love to take that, that word, that, that Greek word. It is a Greek word. It's, it's the Greek word rich. And do you know what it really means? It means rich. <laughs> you, would, you would use that, that term describing Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. In fact, I, I wrote their names down here. You think about Steve Jobs. He's rich financially. He's dead. But he, he, he invented Apple, and he became a billionaire. You think about Bill Gates, Microsoft. He's rich. He's a billionaire. He, he invented Microsoft. You think about Warren Buffett. He's an investor. He's rich. He's a, he's a billionaire. He's invested all this money and made all these millions and billions of dollars. But it, they all pale. In fact, you think of the richest person you know. You probably don't know Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. I don't either. But if I think about the richest person I know, I start thinking about some of them. I, there's a few that I think, man, that, they're pretty rich. They've got lots of money, but guess what? They pale in comparison to how rich your Savior is. And he's not rich in money. That's what we all want to think about. We all know, oh, he owns a lot of land, or he owns a lot of money. But the Savior you know, well, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns everything else. But you know why you love him? Because he's rich in mercy. That's why you love him, because he is merciful. I wrote this down. It's, it's, it's the understanding here. That, that's what the scripture is trying to teach you and me, is that God is merciful, F-U-L-L. He is full of mercy and he wants to give that mercy to you and he wants to give that mercy to me if we'll just open our hearts and accept what he wants to give to us now I told you I, I, will, I want to finish off this morning you know this understanding of two things I wanted you to know is one that you know we all need mercy and God is merciful I want you to walk away from here knowing that this morning. But it's important, especially as we lead into next Sunday and we talk about how God can turn evil into good. I want you to know that part of what has to be driven home in this series about but God is that but God wants you and me to put into practice the same things that he has done with us. So here's kind of what I'm wanting you to take with you this morning. If you're going to take something home with you this morning, if you're going to take something, and I hope you do this every week, but if you're going to take something that you want to put into practice, not only today and not only tomorrow, but for the rest of your walking days here that God gives you on this earth, is that you can put into practice the mercy that God puts into practice. You can't ever be God. Don't misunderstand me. And you can't forgive anybody of their sins. And you can't give anybody eternal life. 
But you can grant people mercy even when they don't deserve it. It's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. I'm not saying it is. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for God to send his only son to grant us mercy when we didn't deserve it, and yet he chose to do it. So the key then becomes how do we as people begin to give mercy to people that really don't deserve it. Trust me, all of us right now, I know your mind is going 90 miles an hour with people that you think, well, that guy was so mean to me, or this guy did that to me, or that person did this to me. I get it. I'm there with you. I struggle too because, trust me, there are some people in my life that I don't want to shed an ounce of mercy toward. I totally get that. But the Scripture says that we are called to be different than the world. And if we're called to be different than the world, then how do we begin to put into practice this mercy that He wants us to be givers of? Well, I, I'll be real honest with you. I, I'm not totally sure. We're going we're gonna to keep looking at that for the next few weeks. And I'm going to try to give you some foundations of understanding of where we go with that. But this morning, what I want to do as I close is I want to share with you somebody who's done it. Somebody who has actually done it. And it's somebody who's done it in, in the last week. Unless you're a... a not much into the news or unless you're uh, not much on current events, uh, you will recognize the name Larry Nasser. Um, and if I give you a little background, you'll, you'll probably know it. And if I called him doctor, which I don't want to, but I'll call him doctor for this one time, uh, Dr. Larry Nasser was uh, the physician uh, that for the last 15 to 20 years has worked with the, the gymnastics team of the United States uh, um, Olympics and the national team. Uh, for the last 15 to 20 years, Larry Nasser has worked as the team physician. And if you're not, again, and I'll, I need to be sure I couch this carefully so you'll, uh, you'll be okay with this as I say this, knowing that there are some younger children in here and so I, I will couch this carefully, but you will know and understand what I'm saying. Uh, Larry Nasser, as a team physician uh, for the U.S. Uh, team, uh, for the last 15 years physically assaulted uh, young girls uh, over the whole 15 years. In fact, uh, there's understanding that he probably physically assaulted at least 150 young girls uh, that were coming through uh, the U.S. gymnastics team program. Uh, most every Olympian that you have ever heard of uh, that have won gold medals like Ali Raisman and uh, Simone Biles and all those people that just in the last Olympics were winning gold medals uh, were physically assaulted by this man that I refuse to call a doctor. It's funny, I, I, I've told you this before, but my mom was a nurse in my upbringing taught me uh, to never call a doctor mister. I would never, in fact, I, I think I told you this, but one time I called one of the doctors, Mr. So-and-so, and she grabbed me by the ear and about twisted me every which way, uh, sideways, to remind me that he was a doctor, he'd been to school, and he had earned that distinction to be called doctor, and I would call him doctor for the, uh, for the rest of my life. And, and to this day, one of my best friends in town is Dr. Farron, and I struggle to call him Ed 
because I think my mom's going to pop me if I call him Ed. And so I still a lot of times will refer to him as Dr. Farron when I, when I see him. And even Laura, <laughs> this past Dr. Farron's son is Clay Farron, and we were with him this weekend, and he is now a doctor. He's in residency. And Laura told somebody uh, that we were with the other day, they said, this is Clay. She said, this is Clay Farron. He's in medical school. And I went, mm-mm, he's a doctor. You better say doctor. My mom's going to come down and get us all if you don't call him Dr. Farron. And so she went, oh, that's right. He is a doctor. So that, that's kind of my bringing. That's why I refuse to call this man. He, he has done everything to not be worthy to be called that anymore. But I, I want you to listen to this. I'm sorry it's taken a while, but I, I want you to listen. Rachel Dollenhander, that's her name. Ra- Rachel, hang on, I messed up. Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel Den Hollander was the gymnast who is, she's 32 years old now. She's an attorney. But she's the one that brought all the charges against him. She's the one that brought this man into the light and said, I want the world to know what this man has done. And after she did it, 150 other girls finally uh, stood up and said, me too. Okay? So all of those girls, this past week, Larry Nasser was sentenced to 150 years in prison. Good for him. All of those girls got to make a victim impact statement. They let Rachel Den Hollander go first because she was the one who, who stood up and said, no more. Somebody's got to do something. Somebody's got to say something. Uh, and she even has a little child uh, that is studying, uh, or not studying, but practicing uh, gymnastics. And uh, she was afraid as this little girl was, was going into, um, into uh, gymnastics practice that this same man might harm her daughter. And so she said, enough. And she stood up and finally brought this man to justice. So she got to make an impact statement. First one. She, the, the judge said, you'll be the first one to stand up and make an impact statement because you were the one who was brave enough to stand up and point him out for who he is and what he's done. I don't know about you, but if I had the chance to do that and it would have been my daughter, I'd have probably uh, in, uh, just said, go to hell. You've, you've hurt so many people. You've done so incredibly ugly things to so many people. I, I just wish you were banished. I wish God would take you off the face of the earth now. I mean, that's, that's how I think I would have been. And if you were honest, you probably would have done the same thing. Listen to what Rachel said. You'll forgive me. It's not long, I promise. I mean, it's 15 pages. I'm not reading all 15 pages. I'm only going to read to you the part that I want you to hear. She's, she's talked for a long time now, but listen to how she closes. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of prayer for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible that you carry, you know the difference. I mean, excuse me, you know the definition of sacrificial love. It's portrayed by God himself. 
loving us so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, listen to her, by his grace, I too choose to love this very same way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read your Bible, you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. And if good deeds can erase what you have done, it would be okay, but they can't. Forgiveness comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuses, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you to be thrown in a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. Listen to what she finishes up with. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Remember, remember me saying that's probably what I would have said? Listen to how she, she finishes that. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel... That is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should have been found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend my forgiveness to you as well. Is that not amazing? What Rachel Den Hollander did is give Larry Nasser a but God moment. She said, you have ruined hundreds of lives. You have taken innocence from hundreds of people. But I'm going to give you a but God moment. And here's the but God moment. The but God moment is this. If you'll realize what you've done and you'll seek forgiveness for it, not from me, but from God, then he will forgive you. And he will give his mercy to you, even though I don't feel like you probably deserve it. That's the Jesus that we worship. That's the Jesus that we love. That's the Jesus that cares for you and cares for me. And listen, cares for Larry Nasser. That same Jesus who gave you mercy that you didn't deserve can give it to Larry Nasser. He can give it to every prisoner in every prison. He can give it to every thief, just like he did the thief on the cross. He can give it to every sinner because he's a great God that loves us beyond what we even deserve. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God.
And we are thankful for the mercy, the merciful God that you are, that we don't even deserve. Now, Father, as we move into a time of invitation, a time of reflection, will you open our hearts to what you want to teach us to do and how you want us to be? And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.